Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday. We have a great show for everyone today. Ryan stepping in for crystals. Good to see you, my friend. Nice to see you too. Absolutely. We've got a little cra- counterpoints, crossover, bro show, go. whatever you guys want to call it. Who many people are saying um, <laughs> for the BP extended universe. But uh, we do have quite a bit to get into today. We're going to start with the U.S. military warning about multiple uh, possible attacks on the United States, in addition to already realized attacks in the air. Uh, we also have a hostage situation which is developing and which two have been released from Hamas so far. These are actual Israeli citizens, possible future ones that will happen as well. Fears, though, also of what the ground invasion will look like. Warnings even coming from Tucker Carlson, which is kind of interesting. Um, the speaker fight. Ryan, you're going to use your extensive uh, congressional knowledge in order to update us on what the hell is going on. Tell you who the next nine guys who the won't next be speaker nine are nine guys be. <laughs> who will not be speaker. Well said. Trump also making a hilarious comment on the situation. We've got some confirmation about Nord Stream Pipeline and uh, a so-called unnamed group called the CIA and its involvement there in the bombing, as well as a little bit of an update on what's going on in that war. We can't take our eye off that. Also, a story I've been totally obsessed with is that there was an attempted hijacking here in the United States by an off-duty pilot. I mean, I don't even know if hijacking is the right word, but he's an off-duty pilot. He was inside of the cockpit. He tried to shut the engines down and bring the plane down, Ryan. It's absolutely insane story. I'm shocked that it's 
it's not getting enough media attention. Most, and then, most saga story ever. We're going to have some yes, audio from the cockpit. We will Definitely have hear audio that. from the cockpit, uh, of which we'll be able to play. And then finally, uh, we will be doing a discussion. Uh, we have to bring some fun back to the show. Killers of the Flower Moon. Is it good? Is it not good? As well as some uh, news about updates. 19th century genocide rather than 21st centuries. century. So oh, we can okay. Have a little, Starting yeah. off hot. All right. <laughs> let's start um, in terms of the U.S. military as we gave you guys an update. So what is happening? There was an attack on American forces by drones across the Middle East yesterday. Let's put this up there on the screen. This comes after a spate of further attacks. This one was inside of Syria at the Al-Tanaf base where U.S. military has had, uh, well, it's an unknown number of forces now for quite some time. It also happens after the drone attack on the Al-Assad air base by this great map that our team has put together and includes, of course, that incident with the USS Kearney off of the coast of Yemen in which they shot down multiple Iranian drones and missiles that they say were headed towards Israel. So this is just the latest attack on American forces. Luckily so far, uh, Ryan, we don't know that anybody was killed in the incident. Recall that one American contractor actually died of a heart attack in the last attack actually on the base inside of Iraq, and it just highlights how vulnerable American forces are. It also comes at a time with some very bellicose and troubling rhetoric from the Pentagon where they say we expect significant yep. escalation against U.S. troops. Let's take a listen. Uh, what we're seeing is, a, is the prospect of a significant escalation of attacks uh, on our troops and uh, our, our people throughout the region. And because of that, we're going to do what's necessary to make sure that our troops are, uh, are in the right uh, good position. We, we saw the uh, USS Kearney uh, take down those three Houthi missiles. Houthis, again, that's an Iranian-backed uh, uh, group in, in Yemen, and also several drones. Were, 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 was that takedown defending our ships in the region, or was it defending Israel? Jonathan, when you have cruise missiles uh, heading towards uh, one of our DDGs, one of our destroyers, that vessel's going to do what it needs to do to protect itself. So he says that missile will do what it protect itself. Ryan, uh, last thing I'll say before I get your reaction is just late last night, senior U.S. defense official telling reporters here in Washington they are preparing, quote, for a much more significant escalation against U.S. forces and personnel in the Middle East. Quote, let's be clear about it. The road leads back to Iran. So we brought everybody mm -hmm. the news yesterday about missile defenses. We've now had multiple, I believe, four separate instances of attacks on American service members in the region. These are just warning shots. If they they wanted to kill them. Unfortunately, they would certainly have the capability. And then the most significant is the USS Carney's involvement so far. What do you think? And so, uh, yeah. Yonatan Tuval, who's an mm. Israeli analyst, uh, yesterday broke some news related to what you're talking about, the, the de delaying the ground invasions mm -hmm. to prepare for this escalation. His gloss on it was he was saying that a U.S. official confirms to me key reason for the IDF ground invasion delay is a U.S. request to complete preparations for a broader conflict, which is similar to the way that you're hearing it framed in the United States, but but not quite. Yes. But And I think his read is a little bit more accurate. So the U.S. expects that the Israeli ground invasion into Gaza is then going to launch a, a broader regional war. Uh -huh. The U.S. has been saying we'd like you to delay this ground invasion so that we can get humanitarian relief into right. Gaza. And hostages out. And the hostages out. This suggests that no, that's not, that's not what's going on, that they fear 
that this ground invasion is going to cause this bigger regional war. And so they want to get their assets in place. Yes. But what getting assets in place does, what does it do? It triples, quadruples, quintuples the number of targets that Iranian-backed militias and el- elements and fighters around the region have to target. If that, that great map that we had earlier, mm-hmm. that's the consequence of our last 20, 30 years of policy yes. in the Middle East. Tro- we have troops in northern Iraq. We have troops in western Iraq. We have troops in Syria. Uh, we, we've got assets now in the, you know, around Yemen and around the Mediterranean. Each one of those becomes then a leverage point for Iran and its mm-hmm. allies. They don't need to conquer us. What they need to do is cause us damage, which then causes us to respond. That's a very well, a good way of putting it. And you know, unfortunately, that map didn't even have all the assets that we, we should put. Actually, I think we put one up yesterday uh, that showed everybody just the sheer number of yeah. thousands of American service members, and not to even mention all the citizens who live in the region, which are all soft targets. Uh, at the same time, the United States is now sending even more active duty U.S. troops in addition to the 2,000 Marines, in addition to the two carrier strike groups. Here is the president aide John Kirby giving an update. Let's take a listen. We have said from the very beginning, we don't want to see any actor try to take advantage of the situation to widen or deepen the conflict. And that certainly includes Hezbollah. And that's why the president has added additional military forces to the region and more forces will be coming uh, in days and weeks ahead uh, to try to deter any actor from widening or deepening this conflict. So with more troops, more forces, and even more on top of that. I mean, what is the number? They're not even telling us, Ryan. We've got thousands in Iraq and Syria, as far as we know. The official number yeah. is classified. Also, they get around it because, as we found out when that contractor died, half these guys, maybe even right. more, are contractors. So it means right. you don't have to disclose it. Are they are they there for the military, though? Yeah. So they, to me, might as well right. they can. Yeah. So what does that mean? So we've got thousands of guys in Iraq and Syria. We've got thousands of guys in Bahrain. We've got thousands of guys um, in uh, Navy assets now, carrier strike group, everybody's sitting off the coast. None of this even factors in the base that we have in Doha, right. in Qatar. 10,000 uh, people ten, there. Who knows how yeah. many people there are. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was thousands whenever I lived there. It's probably, I think it's probably doubled ever since then. So you put all these together, and I'm looking at target, target, mm-hmm. target, target, where you don't need a medium-range ballistic missile to kill these people. Right. All you need is a slightly more little, sophisticated little rocket yeah. and launch it from any Iraqi or a Shia militia that Iran yep. has been now been controlling for 20 years. I mean, this is a total nightmare. And if you don't you know, believe us, just ask the 500 or so American soldiers who were killed by Iranian-backed technology mm-hmm. when we were in Iraq. The Iranian government didn't have to do anything. All they had to do was give like a particularly sophisticated IED to their proxies. And hundreds of our servicemen were killed, who untold thousands were wounded, and then untold tens of thousands suffering PTSD as a result of that. And there's a fundamental irrationality yeah. behind what Kirby is saying there, and yeah. a, just a lack of thought or belief that the United States has any agency in this situation. It's it's such a strange yes. thing to watch unfold. Because here he is saying, listen, if you're out there, we want you to know, if you're an actor, you better not take advantage of this situation. Just kind of hoping that Iran and its and its allies in, in the region you know, don't undermine what the United States and Israel want to do mm-hmm. in Gaza and in the, in the Middle East. Without thinking, well, what could the United States do to stave off what they say they don't want to happen? Because I think we should take the U.S. at its word in the sense that there actually is no broader interest that the U.S. has in having a regional war in the Middle East right now. Like, 
you can say, okay, there are elements of you know, Northern Virginia that will benefit because they'll be able to sell more weapons, fine. But the U.S. geopolitical interest is not currently served when they have the problems in Taiwan. They've got, they, they still have a war that they're supporting in Ukraine against Russia. And so opening up a front there is not in their interest. So therefore, what are they, why are they allowing it to happen? That's, and this idea that they're gonna deter Iran by sending more targets is absurd because they don't, they're not recognizing that these are targets. They're seeing them as assets that are going to intimidate Iran yeah. ra rather than, oh, one, one more way, one more thing, one little, one little tiny torpedo now or a drone that we can hit this battleship. Yeah, with. and as we all saw, I mean, the IDF, uh, you know, it's a very significant, probably what, one of the most advanced militaries in the world. world history, they yeah. accidentally just shot uh, at the Egyptians. Yeah, it what, happens, a, what a mess. Yeah. Right? It yeah. it, and this is just, this is not to say like, that this is not even to blame them, it's just more to say, it happens in war. Yeah. I mean, terrible things, things go off. Uh, as we all saw with the hospital, it can take hours in order to figure out what the hell is true and what the hell is not true. And in the interim, you've got protests that go all over the world, and you've got, at that point, now you're responding to a real world event, which was a reaction possibly to a fake event. You're right. never gonna know. And as the more troops that we have in the region, the more targets that we have. I tweeted this yesterday, Ron, I'm curious for what you think. I just said, the entire US political system seems resigned to a broader war mm -hmm. in the Middle East with the implicit assumption it is somehow worth it. It's actually not worth it at all. The reason that they are quiet is because when it does happen, they will pretend that there was nothing that we could do to avoid it. And I really believe that now watching all of these forces being sent, watching the secret reports about, no, we don't really care. It's not about the hostages. We just we need the time to prepare for the forthcoming attacks. I'm like, well, hold on a second. Maybe we just stop the forthcoming attack. We try and at least yeah. come to some sort of solution. Talk with the Israelis, talk with Hamas, and just be like, look, what can we actually do here in order to make this happen? A serious effort would be to make sure that the forthcoming backlash does not occur. Yeah. How do you do that? I'm not gonna say that it's the easiest thing in the world. You have to minimize civilian casualties as much as humanly possible. Right now, the IDF is, you know, using an air campaign, which by, as we played you the audio from Jocko Willink, a man who is by no means a liberal and who has extensive experience. He was like, I don't think that these airstrikes are accomplishing the military right. objective that you really want. And we're going to talk soon um, about what this invasion is gearing up to look like. This is an urban nightmare. So I'm not even yeah. talking about the Humanitarian. I'm talking about the fight itself. We've got 50 to 60,000 dug in fighters. That is almost what, five times the number of ISIS fighters that they had in Mosul. I just looked up the civilian casualties yesterday. The official number in Mosul was one to one, one civilian for every ISIS fighter. Mm. Okay, well, let's play that out in Gaza, where it's probably going to be higher. It's even more densely populated. Mm. Two to one? What? That's 100,000 people. Now, even if you think that is justified, do you think that the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Turks, the, you know, all the entire Arab world is going to sit back and take that, not to mention the Iranians? It's just simply impossible to right. imagine, Ryan, a world where that happens. Right. It's, I think it's useful to go yeah. back to the metaphor that Israel has used for its Gaza operations in mm. the past. They say they're, they call it mowing the lawn. Yes. Which is, Kind of a cynical and chilling term, but they every couple of years there'd be a, you know, a couple of weeks of airstrikes, and they would say that they're talking about just shrinking Hamas's capacity just a little bit. Underneath that cynical and chilling metaphor is the reality that 
there is a grassroots there that is just going to continue to grow. Mm. So let's say you even do kill 100,000 civilians. You kill 50,000 Hamas fighters. You somehow clear out this, what, 500 kilometers of tunnels that they have underneath Gaza, whatever the number is. Yeah. Just it's the, the biggest tunnel yeah. network huge. in world history. Let's say you actually manage to clear that out. You're still left with hundreds of thousands of 14 and 15-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Ar- Ar- Iran can't resupply people over the next couple of years. And now you have them remembering one of the most uh, you know, gruesome massacres of Palestinians in it maybe the last hundred years. Yes. Let's hold this because it gets to something else that we want to talk about, which is that the U.S. military is now actively helping the Israelis plan for this campaign. John Kirby discussing some of that yesterday. Let's take a listen. I can tell you, as Secretary Austin made clear yesterday, we have been in active discussion with Israeli officials since the beginning of this conflict uh, to make sure we had a good understanding of their intentions, their plans, uh, where they were trying to take things to to see if if we could better understand how they've answered the very tough questions that any military needs to ask themselves before uh, they commit to a a, a large-scale operation of any kind. Uh, We want to make sure we have an understanding of how they are coming to those those solutions and those answers. And, of course, we've made it clear that we'll be... willing to, to, to help in, in any way that we can. But it is important to remember that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, they make their own decisions. They they decide what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. Uh, and again, uh, all we're trying to do is make sure that they know uh, we're here as a resource, certainly for information and context. We've had a lot of experience in this kind of thing, but also from a, a security assistance perspective. So there he is. He confirms U.S. military is actively involved. And mm-hmm. just to underscore that, let's put this on the screen. Um, this was just a report yesterday. The Marine Corps three-star general is now advising the Israeli military on the gra- Gaza ground operation. So this is Lieutenant General James Glynn, uh, according to senior Israeli officials. He has been on the ground now in Tel Aviv for some time, and he is now helping the operational plan for the IDF for how it is going to conduct itself in Gaza. And uh, Lieutenant General Glynn is probably one of the people to know. Let's go and put this up there on the screen in terms of his past experience, but just to also underscore what this fight is going to look like, he was the deputy commander of some of the Special Operations Joint Task Force in Iraq in 2017 and 18. That was in the aftermath of the Battle of Mosul. More relevant to Gaza, he was the battalion commander of the two four Marines during the 2006-07 Battle of Ramadi, which at the time was compared to a miniature Stalingrad. So, um, I don't think I need to tell everybody about how Stalingrad went and the untold millions that were killed or wounded mm-hmm. in that conflict, but it underscores two things. Uh, first, his direct operational experience in the Ramadi campaign, but really, and probably most relevant, is the Mosul campaign. Because if, if that's what they're looking for, in Ramadi um, and in Mosul, it was the similar you know, political objective elimination of the terrorist group Al-Qaeda in Iraq, or in that case, ISIS, which it eventually morphed into. In both cases, it required thousands of casualties, even with air Mm -hmm. superiority, superior weapons, superior training, and that did not even have the civilian support that Hamas has inside of Gaza. Right. That's that's actually what I think is the is the you know the real X factor in all of this. 
Right. People in Mosul hated ISIS. They, yeah, they were not, they they hated were not there for that. Yeah. They wanted to kill, in many cases, they did kill them if they yeah. had the chance. Even al-Qaeda in Iraq and in Ramadi. Yeah, I mean, they had some Sunni support and all that, but it was not even close. Yeah. Hamas, and let's all be real about this, this is what some people need to also admit, they have a ton of support. I'm not going to say they have 100 support, but you know, it right. wouldn't shock me if it was majority. And it doesn't mean they, that particular people support everything that they do, yeah. but it's like, they what what... Palestinians, what a lot of Palestinians in Gaza want is a militant organization that is yes. going to fight Israel. Right, and I'm not saying I agree with that. Right. I'm saying well, this is the basic reality. And whenever you have 50, maybe 60% of the population which is supporting you, especially when you've got an invading force now coming against you, what do you do? You give those people food, you give them water, you let them hide out in your house. I mean, that's a whole other uh, scenario. When the Iraqi security forces were retaking Mosul, the civilians in most cases were like, they're over there, go get them, you know? Yeah. Go, please, be my guest, they're in my house. You can take whatever you want. They were supporting the people that were reclaiming the territory. It's gonna be a complete opposite, much more akin to the US experience in Iraq, especially in the most like hardcore um, elements where the vast majority of the population actually was supporting those groups. And we found out, you know, in 2006 and in 2007 that just simply going in and killing those people, mm -hmm. you know, sending Navy SEALs in at night and killing the, uh, the leaders of the terrorist group, it didn't work. It turned out what we had to do was pursue a massive counterinsurgency campaign, tr basically occupy the neighborhoods, try to bring democracy and police forcing right. and all that. And we took so many American casualties in that. And it didn't even work in the long run because right. we had to pull out because it cost too much and the political support wasn't there. So that's the nightmare scenario yep. of what you're facing. And, and the other two distinctions there are time and the tunnels. Mm -hmm. So with, with Ramadi, you know, we invaded in 2003. This yes. battle's going on in, uh, in Haditha as well, where, where Glenn was. Oh, yeah. uh, we're talking 2007, 2008. So they had just a couple of years to prepare. Gaza has this, like as we talked about earlier, this tunnel network that makes clearing an area door to door so much more difficult. Mm -hmm. Because if you can if you can move underground, and and you can move underground underground, and to understand the sophistication of this tunnel network, it appears that some Hamas fighters uh, emerged in Israel yes. on October seventh after going underneath an underground wall that Israel built so deep that they believed that Hamas would no longer be able to tunnel out, because that, that's what Hamas was doing. They were tunneling right. underneath the fence, underneath the wall, and then coming in and, and launching raids. They went even further than, they, than Israel understood that they were capable of doing. There are you know, tunnels that go into Egypt, tunnels, tunnels that go all over the place. And so if you clear an area and people have left by tunnel, and now you move out and you're trying to control other areas, people can tunnel right back in and come behind you. And so there was a briefing of this weekend that the uh, Pentagon gave to the House Armed Services Committee, and Ken Klippenstein and I have been reporting on this. Uh, the New York Times seems to have some kind of related reporting recently that the Pentagon is extremely pessimistic mm -hmm. about Israel's capacity to have any type of success in this ground invasion beyond just leveling buildings. Yes. Like that, that they can accomplish. But beyond that, can they hold those, can they even hold piles of rubble 
is an open question. This is an excellent, I mean, let's think about, when's the last time the United States military had to face an extensive tunnel network in urban combat, or even just in combat combat. situation? It was Vietnam. And you know, some of the most horrific stories of American service members in Vietnam are the tunnels. Or, you know, we often overlook the Pacific campaign, but think about the Mm -hmm. battles on Okinawa and Iwo Jima. If you've ever seen Letter to Iwo Jima, it's a great uh, film, I highly recommend it. Uh, You know, what did they rely on? They're extensive, mm-hmm. dug-in fortifications, which if you're willing to fight to the last man, well, you know, the last time I checked, that's a pretty core tenant of Islamic extremist ideology. You can inflict a ton of damage. Yes, you can. You will lose in the long run. But with the U.S. at that time had total political commitment to the complete elimination of Japanese forces. I mean, we lost like 25,000 guys in some of these yeah. uh, battles. And that was not in a densely packed urban combat situation. It's like overlaying the worst experiences of the Americans in jungle warfare in Vietnam and uh, against the Japanese in the island chains on top of some of the worst American experiences in Iraq. And, you know, we really have never seen anything even like this. And that's why they're correct to be pessimistic. And this, I think the reason I'm trying to talk this way is you can support this action. You can be one of those people who's like, no, we got to do it. I just want you to know what you're signing up for. I want you to understand like what that is going to look like for years and years, the political support that that is going to require from the Israeli population and from the American population, not to mention the political backlash from the Arab world. Like you, this is the most predictable scenario on earth. Now, um, are you going to choose it? And if you are, you should know exactly what you are buying whenever you do that. One more point that might seem trivial at Mm. this point, but if you, if you, I'm sure you know a lot of people who yeah. were uh, first responders, journalists, uh, Wall Street people types who were on, you know, who were at Ground Zero yes. on 9/11. Well, I've heard the stories. But yeah. yeah, so many of them uh, did not live ten years later because of the cancers that they got from That's all of the, That's true. Uh, the the buildings that collapsed put out so much poison in the air uh, that it it has caused you know John Stewart's lobbying campaign mm-hmm. to take care of those first responders. Every single person in Gaza is facing that right now, and every Israeli troop who goes in there and spends a week huffing in that air is looking at, uh, you know, know, potentially fatal health implications. Yeah, I had not thought about that, but you're totally right. But just the amount of particulates that are gonna be up in the air, we got all this fire going on, all this other horrible stuff. I mean, war is hell, they say it for a reason. And, you know, uh, at that time, it, it takes, you need to, we need to be very aware of what we're doing. And it's clear that the US now is deeply militarily involved, you know, in planning with the IDF here. The IDF has got to have its eyes completely wide open. And it's not just them, all of you. If you're supporting this action, like you also need to understand, you know, what exactly is going to happen and what this is going to look like. Let's move to the hostages because this has been a key part of this entire story. Um, Two Israeli hostages, two elderly women were actually released by Hamas just yesterday. Um, But before we get to that, President Biden was actually asked about even more hostages being released. It seems to be his single political objective, at least publicly, that he's been talking about. Let's take a listen. Any 
If you had any difficulty hearing that, the direct question was, is the U.S. supporting a hostages for ceasefire deal? He says, not a ceasefire. We should have a hostages release and then we can talk. So as I mentioned, two Israeli hostages were released by Hamas. Let's go ahead and put this up there and play this on the screen. Uh, these poor elderly women who were released there by Hamas militants, um, by all accounts, they're at least recovering. Um, right now, they're you know, in this terrible stage position. This was video directly released um, by Hamas. Hamas saying that they were released due to their age. But what it does just highlight is that with the release of these two hostages, there are still dozens more hostages, both with dual citizenship and with just pure Israeli citizenship that remain inside. Let's put this up there, uh, please, on the screen. CBS News um, has this report. These, in terms of uh, who, who these hostages were, they were actually abducted from their homes in a kibbutz, the smaller area near the Gaza community that came under attack on October 7th. So aged uh, 79 and aged uh, 85, two of these women. But it does just highlight, Ryan, you know, just the sheer number of people that still remain in captivity. We don't know um, what that exact number is. 20 of the hostages taken to Gaza, according to the IDF, were under the age of 18. And between 10 to 20 were actually over the age of 80. So these are just two of those elderly hostages. There's still dozens left. Yeah, and a, a couple interesting points about yeah. these particular ladies. Uh, they were peace activists, uh -huh. uh, anti-occupation uh, folks, who would, would often go into Gaza huh. and help transport people from Gaza to hospitals in Israel wow. because getting out of Getting out of Gaza to an Israeli hospital requires a, a pass. Well, obviously mm -hmm. right now that's not happening, but in normal times, yes. abnormal times, you need to get a, a, basically a travel pass from Israel, and those are life or death passes. If you have a complication that can be treated in a hospital and you can't get that pass, you die. Uh, if if you get the pass, you can live. And there were there are Israeli Israelis who, on humanitarian grounds, uh, would kind of volunteer their time to help mm -hmm. shepherd people through. And they were among these, a lot of these kibbutzes down in southern Israel populated by left-leaning Israelis, which is a kind of a cruel irony. Not that anybody, does, any civilian right. deserves uh, to be But these know, people hurt. in particular, I'm glad that you're right. saying that. I didn't even know that, you yeah. know, heroic. Maybe, why don't you explain to people what a kibbutz is? Most oh, yeah, people the, probably don't know. Basically, yeah. commune, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you, know there, the, you know, the early, early Zionism was, yeah. you know, entangled with socialism. Mm -hmm. In in a, in a romantic way, and the way that it ex expressed itself was through these kibbutzes, which are you know similar to communes, which everybody would chip in. Uh, everybody, you know, there a lot of eating together, working together, uh, celebrating together, a real f you know family social atmosphere. And a ton of the people in the south um, are kind of uh, descendants of that tradition. And in fact, they are massive critics of this right-wing yes. Israeli government. And when the Israeli government moved military resources out of the South to the West Bank to support these kind of rampaging pogroms mm -hmm. that the settlers were carrying out in the West Bank, you know, because they were creating so much chaos, they needed extra resources, it was understood in Israel that one reason they pulled those resources out of the South was as an FU to their political enemies mm. down in the South. And it's also why in Israel you see uh, a lot of right-wing elements attacking the families of hostages. Like here in the United States, we, excuse me, they're doing what? Mm -hmm. How can, right now, while, while their kin are being held by Hamas, you're attacking them? It's because these families are calling for a ceasefire. And, and uh, the Israeli right is calling them traitors. The Israeli right lost their mind on these two women because one of them, it's not in, the, it's not in that video, uh. but you can find it, says shalom uh, 
to the hostage taker on the way out huh. and reaches back and shakes his hand. Wow. Israeli right is livid at her huh. for doing that. Well, I don't think we should be policing the behavior of any old ladies, especially those who were taken yeah, hostage. Let her do what she wants. That's just my, uh, you know, my very controversial take, <laughs> I guess. Uh, to what you said, we have some video from some of the family of hostages mm -hmm. that were released. The American citizens, here's what they had to say. They are physically well. Um, we were very happy to learn that. Mentally, how are they doing? You know, they're, um, it's going to be a long, a long uh, road for them and for the rest of the family to heal from this. Would you prefer that Israel delays its ground invasion until every avenue has been attempted to bring the hostages back? I, we demand it. We, they need to do everything to get the hostages back, to get our family back and 200 more families, loved ones back before anything is even on the table. The hostages, they are civilians. This is the basic contract between the country and us. The civilians come first. The reason I'm glad that we highlighted that is this is something I've been trying to emphasize here, Ryan. Hostages in Israel f have a very different political connotation and salience than they probably do in the United States. And the reason why is everybody's already been forced to serve in the IDF. People uh, feel the security situation extremely acutely. Hostage families have extraordinary amounts of sympathy. People know that it's absolutely not, especially these two old ladies, you know, people mm -hmm. like that, or these Americans. And the reason, as you said, why the right, in some cases, is even attacking some of these families is because they have very, very different political objectives. And we know that they have a tremendous amount of salience, these hostage families. These are politically almost untouchable, yeah. you know, inside of Israel. It also comes um, at a time when diplomacy could be working here. I wouldn't say could. We do not know and 100% for sure because these two ladies were released. But there's also uh, talk of a deal right now, Ryan, hasn't materialized yet. The Red Cross is in talks to receive some 50, 50 hostages with dual citizenship. Mm -hmm. That was actually a news report out of Israel. Again, it's just a report. It has not yet um, actually occurred, but you know, 50 hostages would be pretty significant if that yeah. were to happen. And, and let me read you a line yeah. from the Times of Israel that underscores everything mm. that you just said. The line goes, the army is concerned that further hostage releases by Hamas could lead the political leadership to delay a ground incursion. Interesting. Or even okay. halt it midway. Right. So the IDF, the army, is concerned that Hamas might mm -hmm. release hostages. Like people need to sit with that to understand the politics that are going on here. Right. How could you possibly be concerned that Hamas might release hostages? Because the only possible way is that your agenda is not the recovery of those hostages. It's the execution of this ground invasion for whatever you think mm -hmm. the end the end goal of that is, which isn't even entirely clear. Yeah, you know, and, and you're right. It's something we talked about previously. Even the reject, the, yesterday we brought everybody a report. It might have even been these two women. We tried to confirm it, but we weren't 100% able to, about Israel mm -hmm. actually rejecting two right. hostages that were being offered to them. It, it might have actually been these women just because it fits the characteristic of they didn't want to care for them. The reason they really released them is because they're old and they don't want to be responsible for them dying in their care. And I bet a yeah. lot of people in Gaza knew them. 
Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, oh, good it's point. Like, oh, these Actually, ladies. These are the ladies who th- tried to help guys, us out. They, they took me to get my kid. I hadn't thought about yeah. that. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why would you even want to? But it, listen, no, all of these people are innocent. There's no reason to take any of them hostage. All yeah. of them need to be released. Uh, you know, uh, n- no questions, no ifs, ands, or buts. The question, though, is about the politics of it and the release. And this is honestly a diabolical strategy by Hamas. We all really mm-hmm. thought so from the beginning. It's like, yeah, if you abduct little kids, most people, including their families, will do anything just to make sure that they don't get killed. And yeah, if there is a full-blown ground invasion, then you're effectively sentencing a lot of those kids to death. I mean, if Hamas does either carry that out or maybe, you know, they're holding them in an area next to their closest commanders specifically to invite it. And then we're left just debating who's responsible for their death rather than helping them to live. Yeah. And I, I well, listen, we hope uh, that that can happen. As we said, there is some reporting right now around what exactly um, a hostage deal would look like with those dual citizens. But don't forget, that's just the dual citizens. We're not talking right. about Israeli citizens. And it's just because somebody has to happens to have a French passport or an American passport in addition to their Israeli one doesn't mean that they're better than the other person. Right. We got to try and get all of these people out of there. Um, and at the same time, there is a growing discussion here in the United States about this invasion and what it's going to look like. We gave you a preview of a little bit of this mm-hmm. in our uh, in our commentary in the U.S. military block. But the point here is just to highlight the domestic political conversation around all of us. I found it especially interesting, actually, to see Tucker Carlson plant his flag against some of the conventional wisdom on the right, and really in the establishment right now, basically, which is let Israel do whatever it wants. He's asking the critical question, what about us? What is what is gonna happen to us if we allow all of this to happen? Let's take a listen. What is the objective of the IDF and of, of Blinken, of the United States and Israel in this, short term? Destroy Hamas, but what, is, what does that mean? But- Well, to destroy Hamas in the minds, I think, of policymakers in Washington as well as in Israel is to systematically root them out and kill them in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Now, let's be frank. When you go into an urban environment, you can't pick or choose your targets very easily. First of all, no matter how well trained you are, you're moving into an area that is rubbled. They're ruins. It's very difficult to negotiate in that. When I say negotiate, I mean negotiate the terrain through the rubble. You don't know where the enemy is going to pop up. Once you destroy all these buildings, he can be anywhere. So you're going to take losses going in. But more important, once you start going in there, you're going to end up killing whatever you find. Because the soldier, the Israeli soldier, the American soldier, very much the same, they want to live. They want to survive. When in doubt, pull the trigger. They're not going to stop and say, now, wait a minute, before I shoot, I really need to think about this because that may be a civilian or there may be a family there. That's not going to happen. You can't expect that. So the notion that this is a a, a kind of warfare that is so precise that it can avoid so-called collateral damage is just nonsense. We can't expect miracles that we will assist and support the Israelis in freeing those hostages. Again, the problem is how do you get the hostages out when you're fighting in this extraordinarily dirty and complex environment. What's to prevent the hostages from simply being executed as soon as you move in force into Gaza? I think the Israelis know that. I think our leadership in Washington knows it. They may have even decided that if that happens, that's tragic, but the ultimate goal of destroying Hamas demands this. 
pretty uh, pretty interesting, I think, uh, to come from Tucker Carlson on his show. It's part of a longer clip. I encourage everybody to go watch it. It's like 30 minutes where him and Douglas McGregor just go back and forth like, okay, it looks like we're going to war with Iran. What does that mean? Is it worth it? Mm-hmm. What about the actual military objective here? Again, just emphasize something that you mentioned previously. Let's put this up there on the screen from the Times of Israel itself. It says, IDF believes it is ready for the ground invasion and that it should start soon. The army wants to carry out an incursion even at the cost of heavy losses. Fears that the political echelon may never give the order despite a high level of readiness. Israel saying its war against Hamas destroying the Iranian-backed infrastructure and has vowed to dismantle the organization. However, the Times of Israel has learned after 16 days of airstrikes, the IDF has told the government it is fully prepared for a ground offensive in Gaza and believes that it can achieve the goals set out for it, even at the risk of heavy casualties to the soldiers and amid ongoing attacks by Hezbollah in the north. But the military is fearing the government may not give it. As you mentioned, Ryan, uh, the hostage situation is just such a political football inside of Israel. But uh, if I had to guess, uh, and really what I think that this does show you is this is the most, what, right-wing government in the history of Israel. Mm-hmm. If even they have pause about going in before God, before giving the green light of going into mm-hmm. Gaza, it, I think, just tells you what the stakes are to any political decision maker. These people mm-hmm. are not stupid. They know exactly what is going to happen. They're, in some cases, doing their best. In some cases, they're trying to have a middle road. America knows what's going to happen. Pretty much everybody does. It's just in a wait-and-see period, and it's coming down to the question of, like, are you really going to push the button? Like, are you going to say, green light, go in? What does that look like? What does the next day look like? What does the next year look like? What does the next decade look like after you make that incredibly consequential decision? So I find it very interesting that even Netanyahu and his government— you know, one of the most right-wing governments in the history of Israel, even they are taking a tremendous amount of pause right now. Sure, they're doing the airstrikes, but that's just simply not the same thing as going in and suffering heavy casualties. And I think the more people, and when it comes from the United States military, it's it's that much more powerful to Israel, Mm -hmm. who are asking the question, why? Mm -hmm. What is your objective and what's your plan here? The harder it gets for them to carry out this military incursion. If you think back to the way that the U.S. kind of war-gamed out the Ukrainian counteroffensives, yes. uh, they are, have a very sophisticated war game effort where they sit around and they say, all right, you, you're, you're playing Hamas, mm-hmm. you know, you're playing Islamic Jihad, you're playing Iran, you know, you're playing the Syrian proxies, you're the Iraqi proxies, and they, and they game it out. And every counteroffensive that they kind of gamed out was, was a failure. And then they ran it anyway. Um, the the counteroffensive that was a success, they had gamed that one out, and they had figured out, you know, through that sophisticated strategizing, you know, how they were going to punch through. So they're doing that now, as as we talked about in that previous block. The the, yeah. top, the top Marine general who you know who has the most experience in this type of combat is with them. That means his entire staff, all his analysts, are are, are gaming this out, and you know. We don't have all the access to all the information that they do, but we can see the same thing. Mm-hmm. That every different move that you make has eight different counters. And then at the end of it, even if you counter all those, you ask, well, then what? Okay, you've eliminated Hamas, the organization. That, that it's, its leaders, Qatar has even turned, them over, mm-hmm. turned, turned over the people that are in Doha to the Israelis. They're all locked up or dead. An organization similar to Hamas is going to be produced by a population that wants to resist 
Israel. Mm -hmm. So then what? And so you have some in Israel who are saying, well, this is the kind of third expulsion that we're going to do of Palestinians. Hmm. Like we're we're going to we're going to solve like this the problem. most right wing faction. Right, yeah. most right wing faction. Like we're going to solve this once and for all. Like we're and if there's a broader regional war, that that gives us a chaotic cover. So after we level northern Gaza, we're pushing down into southern Gaza. We're leveling that, and Egypt can figure it out or whatever. Like it's it's not a completely thought out strategy, but it's being articulated yes. by people there who are like. There is no solution here. The solution here is to just clear out Gaza. Mm -hmm. And so be, other than that, nobody's actually putting forward an end game that results in anything that resembles what people talk about with yes. a two-state solution and two, two nations living next to each other. Well, this is, this is why you know, we have to then think about what the cost of this is gonna be. So let's put this up there on the screen. This is the uh, number of casualties that have been reported. Again, let's take the extreme caveat of these are the numbers according to the quote-unquote officials inside both of these places and the United Nations. 1,400 in Israel, 5,087 in Gaza. That's according to Hamas. So look, who knows how much of it is true? Have no clue, cannot verify that number. Yet, though, it is probably directionally true. It's definitely mm -hmm. in the thousands, right? So yes. how high? Obviously, we're also in the fog of war. And what does that look like? And I think what's definitely also true is the scenes inside of Gaza that are getting passed around, again, the entire Arab world. Mm -hmm. These people are looking at this stuff on WhatsApp every day. If you think America has a Twitter problem, you've never been to right. Qatar or Saudi Arabia. All these people are on Twitter. I think I remember seeing at one point, um, it was like 70 something percent of the population in Saudi Arabia gets their news on Twitter. This is a Twitter obsessed yes. culture and their Twitter does not have community notes, just so everybody knows. Yeah, and a, and a, yeah. Side, a side note on that, when all of these journalists yeah. were fleeing Twitter for threads, mm -hmm. it, it, it just reminded me how little they care about the rest of the world and, oh, and foreign policy. Yeah. I couldn't do my job in you know, re reporting on Pakistan or, or the Middle East yeah. or Ukraine or anywhere else without Twitter, Haiti, mm -hmm. Bolivia, whatever. Everybody, everybody's on there. And, and then they have WhatsApp, the, yes. you know, the channels that they're pushing all of these videos yeah. to too. So WhatsApp, Telegram, and Twitter mm -hmm. are like the lifeblood for information sources. It's nothing to do with official news or any of that. Many, most of these countries are far ahead of us in terms of their right. They don't care what the New York Times says about independent media. You know. Exactly, and these these are the scenes that they're seeing. Let's put these uh, up there. Uh, these are the ones that we've been able to gather that just show you um, what some of the rubble looks like the, in terms of the footage that has been coming out. That's at least been verified by some of the journalists that are there on the ground. So you can see here like what exactly it is. I mean, we've got a decent percentage of the housing stock in Gaza that has now been destroyed. It does look and is reminiscent very much of Aleppo or some of the other scenes that used to come out of Syria. Um, some of these, you know, in the cases like you were talking about the particulates, but I just think people need to understand like, you know, the entire Arab world are watching videos like this. And we're watching these videos, uh, Ryan, before mm -hmm. we have actually seen combat. Now, let's take, I mean, look, I'm one of those guys where uh, I'm not proud of it, but I was on Live Leak from a very early age. RIP to Live Leak. You can watch, probably still around, um, a lot of the combat footage that came out of the war in ISIS. Mm. It was right there. If you wanted to go look for it, well, I'm talking about guys with GoPros to their chests who were getting shot, killed, blown up right there, and it was all being live streamed for the entire world to see. It will be like that times 
who knows how much. Not just because, confined to live leak dudes. Exactly, not yeah. just confined to live leak and guys who want to look like, you know, what it looks like mm-hmm. when uh, people fire, I, f- I forget what those uh, RPG anti-tank or, missiles. Yeah. No, it was, it was something else. Um, anyway, there were these videos were everywhere at the time. But it was just for, like, you know, weirdos like me who were covering the conflict and others who were obsessed um, with watching what's happening on the ground. This is the entire world basically mm-hmm. getting exposed to that. I mean, that scene that we just showed you, now imagine that an Israeli platoon is trying to assault it. And there is IEDs everywhere and people mm-hmm. are getting blown up and there are fighters there in the background and there's RPGs raining down and then there's a jet comes through and tries to take out a position. This is a single tactical thing that I'm just describing and then multiply it by 100 or 200 or whatever that happens and it happens day after day after day. It's like having that t- situation is just so... Uh, it's so foreign, I think, to anything mm-hmm. that we've experienced in the modern media environment. And uh, it's just something that we really can't look away from. We all, uh, it's impossible because the rest of the world is going to be paying so much attention. And it just highlights, if that is this case, there is just no scenario where a broader war cannot be avoided. It's, it's impossible if that, if that is going to occur. So it's a catch-22 for the Israelis, but really it's a big catch-22 for us and the American political system. And speaking of the U.S. political system, the speaker fight, Trump, the current leader of the Republican Party, at least uh, until we technically do have a speaker, has weighed in on the fight. Here's who he thinks could get elected. Only one person that can do it all the way. You know who that is? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus came down and said, I want to be speaker. He would do it. Other than that, I haven't seen seen anybody that can guarantee it. But at some point, I think we're going to... We'll have somebody pretty soon. So only Jesus could do it, but at some point we'll have somebody pretty soon. Okay, all right. Uh, that, that the man is weighed in. My personal favorite addendum to this is something our producer pointed out. Put this up there on the screen. Uh, truthing out this photo of himself next to uh, a fictionalized Re- Jesus, Republic I guess, of Nazareth, on court. Uh, the issue, Ryan, as you both pointed out, I'm no biblical scholar myself, but I don't <laughs> believe. The trial worked out so well for Jesus. Um, We can have uh, the biblical people weigh in. Maybe there's an Old and a New Testament thing. No, actually, no, right? Because Jesus is not in the Old Testament. See, that's how much I know about all of this. My point, though, is to actually just rely on you um, because you cover so much of um, Congress. Tell us a little bit about these gentlemen Who's running? We got nine speakers. Also, we have a vote today. Just lay it out for everybody. So last night, nine dudes presented their case for why they should be speaker okay. privately to the House Republican Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them dropped out after the end of his speech. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dan, uh, so what's his name? Got it. He was a problem solvers guy. That's ah. that's the like uh, re- the Republicans and Josh Gottheimer yes. who get together and pretend that they're going to solve problems. Uh, so they're so they're down to eight. The only one you really need to know about is at this point is probably Tom Emmer. Okay. He was the, he's the whip. He's the yes. currently the whip. And so he's the last number man, three. Right. Yeah. So the last man standing of the kind of Republican leadership mm-hmm. of you know, unless you unless you count McHenry, but of, of McCarthy, Scalise, and Emmer. And to Emily's Emily Jashinsky's credit, she's been pointing to Emmer as a kind of a dark horse candidate mm-hmm. from the very beginning because he has really good relationships kind of with a lot of Freedom Caucus members, Republican Study Group, which is the kind of right-wing but less right-wing than the Freedom Caucus group. Uh, however, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, that whole world, Matt Gates, they like they've been on a the Matt Gates has been organizing through Steve Bannon and Trump. Mm-hmm. They've been on a campaign against Tom Emmer. Like they're calling Emmer 
uh, a never Trump candidate. Interesting. They're saying that if we ha- that if you have McConnell in the Senate and Emmer in the House, what even is the point of Trump winning the presidency? So the qu- so they're meeting at 9 a.m. this morning. They're going to have then kind of a secret vote, and if one of them gets more than a majority, they become the speaker designate. Okay. Emmer is going to likely get a majority. Mm-hmm. Then the question is, does he go to the floor? And if he goes to the floor, does he get the 217 he needs? He's the whip, so he should know the vote count. People like Gates are implacably kind of opposed to Emmer. Uh, or, so the thinking among the kind of Bannon world that has organized this putsch believes that they have at least five, maybe 10 to 15 hard nose against Emmer, who they're really trying hard to frame as never Trump. Emmer himself is trying to do everything he can to say that he, no, 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 I, I love Trump. The main knock against him is that he voted to certify uh, the election. So we have some of the votes yeah. on that, actually. The vote record of some of these gentlemen. Yeah, we can see here uh, for the main ones. Tom Emmer, vert- certifying the election. Yes. Same-sex marriage. Yes. Ukraine aid. Yes. Fiscal responsibility. Yes. 47-day funding bill. Yes, that's about as establishment as I guess it gets for the Republican Party. Uh, some of the other candidates there, you have multiple no's and other things across the board. But one thing that I'm seeing floated right now, Ryan, is the idea that Democrats would s- not attend. They would basically sit mm-hmm. out the vote to give Emmer a majority. Could right. you just explain how that would work procedurally? What does that yeah, mean? What, what, they, what they call it on Capitol Hill is taking a walk. Okay. What do, you, what do I need to do to get you to take a walk? Mm-hmm. And so when you take a walk, you literally take a walk. Like you walk, out, walk, of the, out. walk out of the chamber, you go out on the steps, you enjoy the sun. Yeah. And they'll say, the, the clerk will read out, Mr. Gottheimer. Uh-huh. And you're just not there. Mr. Gottheimer. Right. Mr. Gottheimer. And then so then there's no vote recorded for Mr. Gottheimer. Mm-hmm. That lowers the threshold. If, if, six peop, if six Democrats take a walk, the threshold comes down by three. So then instead of 217, you need 214. Hmm. If, if, five take a, if 10 take a walk, it comes down by five. Now, just now, uh, Dean Phillips, who, yes. he's the dude who is Minnesota Congress and Democrat right. who keeps pretending like he's gonna run, or maybe he is running, who knows? running we'll for president against Biden. So yeah. it's kind of a wild card. He's, he's willing to do whatever. Uh, he's also one of the most outspoken supporters of Israel in the Democratic mm-hmm. caucus. So he writes, on Twitter, this is just now, the dysfunction in the House is a national and global security issue. I would sit out the speaker vote if Tom Emmer, so now he's gonna start negotiating, if Tom Emmer will fund our government at negotiated levels, Mm. bring Ukraine and Israel aid bills to the floor, and commit to rules changes to make Congress work for the people. Ah. So people like Gottheimer, Henry Cuellar, Phillips, there there are enough people that could with with Jeffrey's permission or not, could say, look, here are the things, if you commit to these things, uh, then we'll take a walk and you then only need 210. So Gates Gates and his eight, or the crazy eight, as, as McCarthy calls them, mm-hmm. can vote no, 
and you still have a majority with 210. Yeah, that fits with some reporting now here in Washington. They say some House Democrats tell us they find Emmer the least objectionable <laughs> GOP candidate. They would be open to helping him by sitting the vote out. If they get private assurances, he will fund the government at levels negotiating the debt limit deal and put Ukraine plus Israel aid bill on the floor. How, Interesting. How private are those That's all they want, right? How private assurance? Yeah, well, how that's- How private are those assurances? That's if, the big question, yes. I think, because in terms of uh, Tom Emmer, it's like, can you even govern effectively your caucus if you get elevated based upon Democratic votes? I mean, already, just, just a perusal of the timeline here, um, it seems as if Tom Emmer is absolutely not getting the support that he needs. For example, Trump has actually, quote, read truth to attacks on Tom Emmer, <laughs> calling him the uniparty pick for yeah. Speaker of the House. Um, he previously served as a national popular vote initiative funded by George Soros, all this other stuff. Previously, though, Trump had been neutral after he said he had a good phone call, I believe, with Trump. But um, the certifying election thing is just going to be the death knell for him, I think, for at least for a bunch, a for, lot, for a lot of magazines. For a lot of them. I'm not saying that doesn't mean he could win. He very much easily right. could win. It's not like the majority of Republicans, you know, re- even support that. But you've got a pretty powerful faction here. And more importantly, if you do get elevated and you don't change the rules on motion to vacate, what's the point? Right. You know, they're just going to keep taking you out. Like and what, so. what Democrats could do if they really did want uh-huh. to strike a deal, Jeffries could have the entire caucus walk. Ah, okay. And so that means- that He just needs, what, a slight two-thirds? Just a majority. Yeah, majority, wow. Just, yeah, so basically, every, if he wins in the closed room today, mm-hmm. that means he has a majority Republican support. Is there a majority of the Republican conference that's willing to go to the House floor and vote against Trump and say, you, I know Tom Emmer, he's not a never-Trumper, he's he's not an anti-insurrectionist, he, you know, whatever, whatever argument they want to make. It is, and I think that there is, uh, but then it's so embarrassing for them to have to have do that. Yes, the spectacle of them working with Democrats. So the other other possibility that people are kicking around is that they do this for McCarthy, hmm. which a lot of people would like, a lot of Republicans would like to do because it would be seen then as a humiliation. Uh, for Gates, and so yes. they can personally get back at Gates. I had not thought about that, but I don't even know if he's running. I mean, he has Well, he's not, he's right. not. But if, but if it looked like he could come in at the last minute, they'd be like, all right, I'm back. How many, how much longer do you anticipate this going? This fund, funding runs out November 17th. Okay. So they have to, they have to figure something out. Yeah. Right, at some point. All right. Or, or they just keep saying, you know what, okay, McHenry continues to just, everybody, nobody seems to think like the idea of McHenry being speaker for including him, the rest of the year, including him. Uh, okay, all right. Well, that's a good uh, run. So, what time is the vote today? Well, what, nine a.m. starts at okay. nine a.m. But you've got all right. Everybody's going to give speeches, right. so so yeah, it'll, it'll be a while. We should know by nine thirty. Okay. Nine thirty, ten o'clock. We right. should. Well, you guys can know. update everybody on uh, on counterpoints tomorrow and give everyone the skinny. Um, Emily will what have it the inside means. dope, no doubt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I, I want to hear it. I'll, I'll be uh, I'll be waiting and I'll be anticipating that eagerly. Let's move on to Ukraine. Uh, Obviously can't take our eye off the ball of what's going on, but it's just amazing to me uh, that these confirmations and these stories, things that everybody knows is probably true, but not officially true, Mm -hmm. comes and just years later and you get some of the most shocking news. Um, And shocking in that it's not surprising, but if you had known this at the time, you would have just been absolutely stunned. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is from the Washington Post, a new deep dive into the CIA and its backing of 
Ukrainian intelligence services. Uh, it says, quote, the missions that have evolved elite teams of Ukrainian operatives drawn from directorates were formed, trained, and equipped in close partnership with the CIA, according to current and former Ukrainian and U.S. officials. Since 2015, CIA has spent tens of millions of dollars to transform Ukraine's Soviet formed services into potent allies against Moscow. The agency has provided Ukraine with advanced surveillance systems, trained recruits at sites in Ukraine as well as in the United States, built them a new headquarters for departments in Ukraine's military intelligence agency, shared intelligence on a scale that would have been unimaginable before Russia illegally annexed Crimea and then fomented a separatist war in eastern Ukraine. The CIA maintains a significant presence in Kyiv, officials said. This uh, is an official confirmation, basically, Ryan, that the Ukrainian kill squads behind the assassinations in Moscow, including of uh, Dugina, mm -hmm. uh, the daughter of a political, how do you even describe him? Like a supporter, like a Russian yeah. political supporter of the war um, in Ukraine, as well as the Intellectual team. architect, sure. you want to call, yeah, go they, with that? I don't know. Let's, let's yeah. go with that. All right. Yeah. And then, the, then also this, uh, the, the team that was very likely behind the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline were formed, trained, and equipped by yeah. the CIA. Now, on the one hand, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out. As we all remember, the New York Times you know, famous story. They're like Ukrainian group behind um, this Nord Stream pipeline bombing. And you're like, oh, really? You're like this group that just so happened to get like special patriots. boat training and yes. pa patriots. And oh, where did their money come from? Amazing, right? It's only, only a couple of intelligence services in the whole world are uh, capable of this. And one of them certainly ain't Ukraine. So I wonder where they got that from. They were like, we believe that outside groups, you know, helped advise them. And everyone, the literal meme on the internet at the time was outside group <laughs> equals CIA. Now, it's just, it's just out there. It's just a yeah. direct confirmation. And I think what's shocking to me is not just the direct operational involvement, bringing these people over, training them. It's that it just shows me, once again, people do not comprehend. The Ukrainian war is a U.S. war. We are paying mm -hmm all their bills. We are giving them all of their weapons. They're doing the fighting. We are doing the planning, the paying, all of the things yeah. that like real nation states do. And on the intelligence side, you know, sure, you know, maybe they're the ones who are technically pressing the button to kill some of these dissidents and all that. But every single one of their bills, all of their training, all of their software, all of their equipment, it's all coming yeah. from us. It's like, the extent to which America is directly backstopping this entire thing is shocking still to me, and I know it to be true. Right. The average person on the street, even people who are like, I support Ukraine, they have no clue. You know, one of the things that came out to me in those documents, the leaked Pentagon documents mm -hmm. that we got from the Discord leak, uh, we never published them just for operational purposes. We didn't want to be accused of like helping the enemy or whatever. But one of the things that was crazy to me, it's not all the stuff that we just reported. It was all these official battle damage assessments. I still have them here, you know, in the files, which show you the U.S. using satellites and all this stuff. We are running all the most basic levels of operations right. at a military tactical level for the entire Ukrainian military. I didn't sign up. Nobody signed up for that. We don't even know that it is happening. This is just another example of it. It reminds me of a quote from a senior Israeli defense official mm. recently who was uh, pressed on, you know, why haven't you launched this ground invasion yes. yet? And I, you might have seen this quote, too, where he said, right. look, the United States asked us not to. Right. And he said, they are funding and equipping the entire thing. Well, what do you okay. want me to do? Say no? <laughs> At least he it's was like, honest about yeah, that one. It's like, yeah. yes. And it's the, yeah. same, it's the same situation in Ukraine. We're, we're funding and equipping and guiding and directing mm -hmm. 
the, the entire thing. It, it is Ukrainian lives that are being put on the line. And, and so that puts them in a place of, what do you want me to do, say no? Right. Like, well, this is, this is our, these are our choices, mm-hmm. if you, and choices are in quotes. Well, unfortunately, we actually give them choices. We don't tell them what to do. In my opinion, we should tell them what to do. And one of the most important things that is really coming through is the assessment now of the 100-something billion dollars that we've given these people. How is it going? How is your counteroffensive going? I came across this chart which I am still shocked by. I mm-hmm. knew that their counteroffensive was not going well. I knew it was bad. But I did not realize that when you compare it to similar combined arms offensives from the last 100 years, it is historically awful. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is from CSIS. It's one of the, mo- and by the way, this is one of the most establishment-friendly think tanks in the whole world. And they put together this graphic. This graphic is the rates of advance for selected combined arms offensives with no air power. Let me underscore that. With no air power, which is why you have to go back over 100 years to World War I. Even in World War I, the rates of advance for troops in that war were better than the Ukrainians. The current advance per day, meters per day, for the Ukrainians in this counteroffensive is 90 meters. The last time so little progress was made by an attacking army in an offensive with no air power was 1914, 1916 in the Battle of the Somme where they advanced a similar amount of meters per day. So let that sink in. That previous, you know, previous offensive by Austria-Hungary, or sorry, by Russia against Austro-Hungarian troops were getting 1,500 meters per day. Previous offensives by the Italians against Austria-Hungary were getting 500. Bella Wood, which remind is, you know, I believe that's where the term devil dog came from for Mar- the U.S. Marine Corps. It's remembered as a nightmare. They were advancing 400 meters. Even mm-hmm. Leningrad, which we remember in history as like this horrific stalled operation, they were going 1,000. Today, where we are right now, just look at that graphic, 90 meters, the Battle of the Somme. I'll tell you, I've been to the Battle of the the Somme. I have seen the amount of graveyards there, Mm -hmm. uh, the 15-year-old's graveyard who was, I'm telling you, it's one of the saddest things. You just drive it in some of the most picturesque places you've ever been on earth. And then right on the side of the road is a graveyard erected by the widows of, you know, whatever shire or something where they're like, oh, all of our men from our uh, English village were all killed in this one spot. And here's all the gravestones and, you know, erected in 1923 or whatever, something like that. And it's heartbreaking. It's just like every mile that you go, oh, a uh, thousand Canadians or whatever, here's their graves. Bunch of Australians, here's their graves. And it's like that everywhere you go. And I'm not even talking about the Germans um, who were killed, right. or two million or whatever um, that were killed. It's when you comprehend like what that type of attritional warfare looks like, it is nightmarish. And there's a reason that those people, after that war happened, were so anxious to never get into a war again and why it was such a massive blow to the psyche right. and what the fallout was. If you could play a role, as America could, in making sure that doesn't happen, why would you not want to do that? And I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah, that those offenses right. that you put up on right. there produced each of them generations of PTSD yes. for the people lucky enough to survive them, mm-hmm. which was not a, not a big amount. And you're right, it, it reshaped kind of entire cultural attitudes mm-hmm. towards, towards war, towards life itself. Right. And to have 
encouraged, armed, equipped, trained, and directed this with all of the forecasts that this is precisely what would happen. Like if, and if you look at Kharkiv on that, mm -hmm. uh, on that graphic, that was one where they caught the Russians off guard, made huge advances. They knew that the Russians would be fortified for this next one. Yes. And the fortifications with the drones and the trenches and the mortar, you know, like, are clearly impenetrable at this point. And that was when the U.S. was shipping all of its weapons mm -hmm. right there. Now we're shipping half of them somewhere else. Well, that's a very good point because even when they were asked about it, the White House is now admitting we are low on the weapons mm -hmm. we need if we ever need to defend the U.S. And now they're How still are we proposing. Invade Mexico? Oh well, I don't even think we would make it past Juarez currently right. um, with the rate of the amount of weapons that we even have in stockpiles. Consider this: when you've got. John Kirby asked directly in an interview, admitting outright, we're running very low, and they still want $70 billion to send to Israel and to Ukraine. Let's take a listen. My question is, the state of those stockpiles right now, the state of uh, where U.S. weapons stockpiles stand, with two wars sending now two different types of shipments on a regular basis towards two U.S. allies, uh, how big is the concern that the U.S. is dangerously low on what it should have for its own defense right now? Well, of course, it's a concern. That's why we asked for that extra supplemental funding from, from Congress. Uh, without getting into classified information, I can assure you and the American people that the United States military can continue to defend uh, our national security interests uh, all around the world. So we need a supplemental to uh, revamp all of the stockpiles. By that, he admits we ha don't have very much in our stockpile. And then he's like, but Israel, we're good, don't worry. Israel's a perfect example. We had a massive ammo dump in Israel, waiting just in case we ever went to war or if they needed it. And then a couple of months ago, we're like, you know what, Ukraine needs it more. Yeah. And so we should, if you're pro-Israel, you should be furious at that. They are. You know, and yeah, they should be. Because, and the Israelis themselves, the amount that they were lectured by the international community and Zelensky, hey, you got to sell us these weapons. You don't need them as much as we do, all of us. And they were like, listen, we're a country which is perpetually at war. We have no idea when we might need it. They were right. They were 100% right. They're totally vindicated. Well, now, what if that happens to us? This is the problem, and it has been from the very beginning um, on this conflict with this sheer amount of weaponry that we've been sending to Ukraine and now that we're sending to Israel. Um, interestingly, actually, there was a quote-unquote Twitter space yesterday. I never know how much any of this stuff moves the needle, but when you have a man as famous as Elon Musk who's speaking in terms like this, I think we should all just take notice. Here's what he had to say yesterday. So it's, it's obviously absurd to have uh, a, a, the smaller army charge the larger army um, when the larger army has massive defenses and will inflict casualties at a rate that is probably three to one or, or maybe worse. Uh, it, it's a hopeless situation. You might as well put, you, put your hand in a meat grinder. So, um, so I, so, so I, and, and, and every week that passes, there are more Ukraine boys that die, more Russian. And I think we've had some, some sympathy too for the Russian boys that are dying in those trenches as well. Do they want to be there? Of course not. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> so that just from, from, from a humanitarian standpoint, we, we should find, I think some, we should push for a, for a ceasefire um, and push for, for peace in that region. And I think then from a civilizational risk standpoint, we should restore normal relations uh, with Russia, we, you know, this seems like a logical path.
It was interesting to me that that was also conducted in the case of an Israel-Hamas discussion with Vivek Ramaswamy, who also has been very uh, sounding a note of caution, I think, on Israel-Hamas and Mm -hmm. what it would lead to for the U.S. So uh, I will just say this. As much as the hysteria and all the nightmarish you know, rhetoric and all that reminds me of post 9-11 and all of that, we at least have the benefit of having too many people who all of us know who were affected <laughs> by the madness of those wars and of recent enough history where we can literally watch it on YouTube if we wanna go back to say, if we could do it all over again, we definitely wouldn't do this. So the, you know, the rhetoric, as bad as it is, Ryan, it's still better than it was in 2001. And because people like you and I remember yeah. that the, the strategic victor out of 9-11 was Osama bin Laden. That's correct. Like, he, he could not, and, and the Iranians, mm-hmm. neither of them could have asked for a better outcome Never. Uh, from the United States to go into, no, currently, who runs Afghanistan? Taliban. Uh, who runs Iraq? Basically, Iran. Iran, yeah, <laughs> and that's at the cost of uh, you know trillions of dollars, thousands of American lives, hundreds of thousands of uh, of Iraqi lives, and it and it took uh, Al Qaeda, which was kind of a little fringe group, to a place of you know ISIS running an entire caliphate for a little while, mm-hmm. like all because of choices that we made in response to the attack on us. Like we have agency in how we decide to respond to these attacks. And well, our response can either bring about more pain and bloodshed to us or, or less. And it seems like we are just hell bent on producing another hell on earth. Hmm. Well, I think that is uh, very well said. And it is just an, another reminder uh, about why you know discussions and shows like this are important at this time. Let's move on to the two stories. One which is very important, one which is not important. Uh, the first one, though, is one that I just personally, you know, people know I have a lot of interest in air travel. Um, and so when I saw the details of this and I uh, realized that it wasn't getting nearly the amount of tension it deserved, I was like, we have to cover this on the show just to make people aware and to keep an eye on this to see if there was anything deeper than what appears right now on the surface. Let's put this up there on the screen just for the details themselves. In off-duty Alaskan Airlines pilot tried to shut off the engines on Everett flight, according to the airline, while he was taking a ride on Sunday and in the jump seat inside of the cockpit. So let that sink in. This off-duty pilot was riding as kind of a, a, shotgun. a, a shotgun, right? And he was like, hey, can I hit your ride? And the team was like, absolutely, sure. The guy already works for the airline. Because he's a pilot, they seat him inside of the cockpit, which means he was screened. That means he's gone through security testing. I mean, theoretically, I'm assuming this man has actually flown real passengers. Well, according to the authorities, the while they were midair, this pilot, jo- Joseph Emerson, tried to shut off the engines in flight had to be subdued by the crew, and in one case, even tried to deploy the fire suppression to stop the engines from reigniting. And we don't know the exact details. Passengers who were on the plane, by the way, they say they had no idea any of this is happening, which I'm not sure that I actually am comforted um, right. by any of that. But here is the actual audio from air traffic control where they describe this incident as they're requesting landing for an emergency in Portland. Let's take a listen. Okay, I'll just uh, give you a heads up. We've got the uh, guy that tried to shut the engines down uh, out of the cockpit, um, and he uh, doesn't sound like he's causing any issue in the back right now. I, I think he's the dude. 
Other than that, uh, yeah, we want law enforcement as soon as we get on the ground and park. Very other, calm. Other, I love other than that, it's 62 degrees yeah. in that, Portland. It's yeah, so rain expected this afternoon. Passengers were like, we had no clue. I had no yeah. idea that it was going on. They just came on. They're like, hey, we got to land in Portland. They're like, okay, whatever. I mean, you know, we're not happy about it, but you had no idea that somebody tried to crash the plane uh, while we were there. Since then, this man, Joseph Emerson, uh, has been charged now, let's put this up there on the screen, with 83 counts of attempted murder for allegedly trying to shut off the engines on this flight. Uh, and again, we don't know very much about jo- Joseph Emerson, except that he was charged now with 83 counts of attempted murder, 83 counts of reckless endangerment, misdemeanor, and one felony count of endangering an aircraft. I mean, this was, um, you know, what's really, I think, crazy to me, Ryan, is one of the reasons that he was on route from Everett to San Francisco is he was scheduled to actually be on the flight crew of a 737. So that's the big question. I mean, mm-hmm. was this a moment of crisis? Is this a mental health event, you know, that happened, that manifested? Is this, I, I mean, I, I hate to even speculate, is this a, like a terrorist attack? Like, what is happening here? Why did he try to do it while he was off duty and not whenever he was the actual pilot? I mean, right. what what is the backstory um, to all of this? I will say one quote that they have is, quote, he was heard in the moments prior saying something similar to, quote, I'm not right. That's a federal official telling ABC mm-hmm. News Again, he was sitting in the flight deck on the jump seat and he unsuccessfully tried to disrupt it. Presumably there's a recorder inside of there, so we should be able to get the audio of everything that was happening. Um, yeah, I mean, it just seems like yeah. a really crazy situation. We're extremely lucky that he right. tried to do it as a co-pilot and that the pilot yeah. somehow managed to, to fend him right. off. And the announcement to the passengers is just absolute classic American pilot. Right. Like, uh, just, uh, just a heads up that the man who was trying to uh, kill us all is uh, right. no longer in the uh, cockpit, and the pilot who wants to keep the engines on remains in the pilot. Uh-huh. Local time is 2.37. We're going to have a little turbulence at 30,000 feet for the next 30 minutes, so we're going to leave the seatbelt signs on. Uh, you know, so uh, just abs- like absolutely incredible to hear to hear that because i'm sure half the passengers weren't actually listening oh definitely and then you kind of and then you halfway hear like wait hold on did he just say right well so i think that tried to turn the engines off in the back of the plane passengers though i think that was on air traffic control although again i don't i'm not 100 (laughs) sure because they also said that they did come over on the passenger audio and just be like hey we're making a landing we're going to be fine we're going to get you off everything's good uh they uh, some people were i think people were just confused they thought it was a serious medical emergency uh anyway look i mean you got 83 souls i think there was even a lap infant you know on the plane um what's scary thing is this man has been flying for quite a long time he's a 44 year old man they have photos of him posted in a flight crew uniform going back to 2016 i mean i've i've flown on an alaskan airlines flight from san francisco so it's you know it's one of the most common routes direct flights uh from washington from to portland to san francisco to i think to los angeles as well so i mean people i know take that plane probably every day so this is one of those that definitely just hits uh for all of us and it's a terrifying situation. The big question just remains, what was the motive here? 
And, you know, we can't forget, you know, there was that terrible, I think it was a German Airlines flight, a Lufthansa affiliate in which the pilot committed suicide or the co-pilot committed suicide while the pilot was in the bathroom. And then obviously there's still, you know, gajillion questions around Malaysia, the Malaysian flight mm-hmm. um, that disappeared and the flight simulator and the pilot themselves still remains a mystery. Pilot uh, suicide being most likely explanation. So look, I guess the only consolation that we have here is that he uh, tried it whenever he was off duty and in the jumpsuit, uh, jump seat was not while he was in the actual pilot seat, which he was literally on route to do so. He's been arrested. Presumably he will be put on trial and we'll get to the bottom of this. I certainly hope uh, that we do so, but did want to give everybody an update on that situation. Last thing, this is a little, at least the little bit of amount of fun I think that we're allowed to have after more than two weeks now of reporting on this horrific tragedy. Um, the release of Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, and I actually, the inspiration for this, Ryan, is that it is one of the biggest search terms amongst our audience. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's what I was shocked by uh, as to the so level of interest. Yeah, not yeah. even just about that. It was like Killers of the Flower Moon Breaking Points Review or something like that. <laughs> You're like, um, all right, here, give the people what they I want. I said, okay, all right, well, we will give the people uh, what they want. So I, I had the privilege of being able to see the movie on Thursday, the day before. You that can it expense premiered. that now. It is, uh, yeah, I guess I can. Uh, it. it, it is uh, very long. It's long. So before I get to the actual review, let's give some of the details. That was a still uh, from there. The, this movie is getting a significant amount of demand. We could put this up there on the screen. It's earned $44 million at the global box office over the weekend, actually topping uh, the Taylor Swift Eras tour, which I also uh, did see. I can give you a separate review of that one. Um, impressively, if they say 46% of the opening night audience for Flower Moon was under the age of 35. One of the reasons uh, I think that's really interesting is, and I do see this actually, a willingness for people who are younger, people like myself, to actually try and fulfill the legacy of what Scorsese wants, you know, to get back to the pictures, mm-hmm. to indulge in the art, to really understand the message that he was going for. This movie is three hours and 30 something minutes long. And I will say, it's long. It's it feels a like long it. <laughs> movie. Uh, and it's not in a bad way. It's just, it's a very long one. Our producer Griffin, he's a big film guy. He was like, man, they really need to bring back intermissions. I could not agree more. Uh, Bollywood movies, if you ever have to watch them, uh, have intermissions and they're great. You know, you get to go to the bathroom. If something's gonna be four hours long, you don't wanna be yeah. sitting in the chair. With with previews, it was about a four hour experience and I went at 7 p.m. So you can do the math. <laughs> Stayed up well past my bedtime for that one. In terms of the movie itself, the way I've been uh, describing it to everybody, I think the movie is uh, a masterpiece. I think it's absolutely worth seeing. It is multiple movies and stories within one, and I think that's one of the genius of Scorsese. It is both this horrific tragedy of these Osage Indians, the way that they were treated there at the time. They're some of the richest people in the world, and yet they have very little agency over their lives. They're being attacked. Mm-hmm. You know, They're being murdered in this case You know, for their money. They're viewed as completely as second-class citizens, but it's also a true crime story within that, the story of the solving of the spate of murders and who was behind it. And then it's a human story. It's a romantic story in some cases where you have this dichotomy of like this man who appears to love his wife, but at the same time is, you know, embroiled in this plot. By the way, spoiler alert. Um, Embroiled (laughs) in this plot in order to murder her and all of her relatives. It's excruciating, honestly. Um, And I mean that in the best of terms for a movie where you just feel so physically uncomfortable. When people have been asking me about how uh, what it's like, I, I've been saying, it's like watching Schindler's List, where the first time you watch it, you know that you are watching a masterpiece, 
you are very upset. How many times are you really gonna watch it in your life? Probably not many, maybe three, maybe four, right? Every time you guys need a reminder of just how horrible the Holocaust was, or you know, you're, it, it's very rare that the stars align, that you wanna sit and you wanna mm-hmm. watch that movie and go through it again. That's a lot what it was like for me. It was mm-hmm. just so brutal and difficult to sit there. And the thing is about the runtime of the movie is he's got enough time where you're in it. You know, you're feeling like the imagery of the Osage people and how they're just being brutalized by the people around them and their senses of grief. You're in it. The lead actress, Lily Gladstone, she's incredible. I mean, we're watching this woman agonize and get on the verge of death as she both is in love with her husband but then doesn't understand that she's being slowly murdered by him. And then the sheer evil of all the people around who are taking advantage of the situation. So just sitting and dwelling in that, it, man, it is really uncomfortable. And look, I, that's the mark of a great filmmaker, but that's my uh, my overall take. I think it's a great movie. I encourage everybody to go see it. And I really encourage people to read the book. It was one of the most popular books mm-hmm. um, in the United States in the last decade. Everybody I know has read it, from people who usually only read fiction to people like me who read tons of books a year. And it's a great story. The author, David Grant, is one of my favorites. He wrote uh, Lost City of Z, one of my favorite mm-hmm. books. That's incredible. Um, he's a New Yorker um, staff writer. He, he, man, that man knows storytelling yeah. uh, more than anyone else I know. So anyway, that's my take uh, for the YouTube search algorithm. You you now have my review. I want to hear yeah. the, uh, well, and let's give him a little history too. Sure. That no, you do it. Yeah, this is, and I haven't, uh, yeah. I haven't seen the movie yet. I mm. can't wait to see it. I've been like eagerly Wait, anticipating the moment where I'll have four mm. hours, <laughs> and I don't know when that's going to be, but right. I hope it's before it leaves the theater. Hopefully. But basically, you had so the situation you had is that the Osage wind up on this massive reservation mm-hmm. in Oklahoma, and then after that, so late 1890s is when oil is discovered there, and, and uh, the oil economy really starts blowing up yes. in, the, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and like the tech economy, it converts. Anybody who's in the right place at the right time, into you know, you know, contemporary billionaires, the, mm-hmm. the equivalent of billionaires, and the, everywhere that you had oil discovered, particularly around Native American uh, reservations, you'd see massive violence to try to uh, displace them from yes. their rights over that oil, or if if it were let, let's say poor white settlers, mm-hmm. like it, it, in some ways it almost easier. Because at least the kind of Osage had legal, kind of tribal, uh, you know, contractual right. claims that courts and Congress were willing to uphold. So that's why so much violence was needed because you couldn't kind of go through the courts and or buy them out or trick them. Um, uh, so that in in so many, it wasn't just the Osage; so many other places you had to um, they they just were then killed just to move them out of the way, uh, and so. Uh, it's kind of representative, it's, it's an amazing story in its own right, but it's representative of a bigger uh, trend that we saw unfolding at that Oh, at absolutely. That time. Yeah, and I think Scorsese takes immense lengths to, he even puts himself in the movie, which is hmm. plot twist, um, near the end, in order to just try, I think the, the key thing, for based upon everything that I've read, is 
in the beginning, the script was a lot like the book. The book is a story of the solving of these murders. Right. But the more that they went through it, they realized in this small scene between um, the husband and the wife was they were like, no, that's the core of the story. It's a love story. And through that love story in this screwed up way where this man loves his wife, but he's also exploiting his wife and he's trying to steal her money. He's trying to murder. He's complicit in the murders of her entire family is the humanity and the inhumanity of that is the story itself. And then you build the crime on top of it. And what he tried to do is he tried to show the humanity of the Osage Indians and at every turn the way that they were discriminated against and even in their riches that they were you know, humiliated, they were treated to second class by the government, by the law authorities, by all the men around them who were managing their money on their behalf and basically just yeah. blood-sucking leeches that viewed them as uh, viewed them as an avenue to get rich as not – as fellow human beings. And I think he dwells and he spends a lot of time in that for good reason, because by doing that, you know, the true crime part of it, it's great. It's a good, it's a fun detective story. Um, I think Jesse Plemons does a great job um, doing in that role. But I didn't even see him until two hours in. Right. You know, and I'm, I spent two hours, I spent a whole movie just sitting there being like, oh my God, like this is horrible. And just watching this over and over again. And Leo, do, you know, Leo does his best when he's like likable, playing dumb, but also a real companion to evil. De Niro is like mm -hmm. absolutely top tier in this movie. He's like 10 out of 10 in his performance in this. I can't think of a single bad performance. There was a lot of interesting uh, cameos. Jason Isbell is in there, like these, uh, the country singer <laughs> um, makes a role. He does a pretty good job, actually. I, I enjoyed his performance. Over, over and over again, it just highlights this consistent theme of the Osage getting taken advantage of. And I think he did a good job of memorializing the story and just highlighting the immense injustice done to them as a mm -hmm. people, not just, you know, the story of this family is the story of the right. people. And that's a great part of the book um, too. And it actually ends um, kind of, uh, it, it ends highlighting their plight, what happened to them, but then their resilience through the last hundred years as well, holding on to their identity. You buried the lead here. Uh, what about the Eras tour? Oh, the Eras tour. How was that? Uh, the Eras tour is, it's honestly, the Eras tour I, I, is I saw, too long. I saw that with my bunch of, uh, neighborhood folks brought a bunch of kids to oh, it. Oh, so I was going to say, I, hear, I, hear I enjoyed it for that yeah. reason, for people yeah. like uh, your daughters, is that yeah. it was just really fun to watch these like eight-year-old girls it. just lose yeah. their mind. I was like, you know what? This is adorable. I'm like, these yes. kids are having so much fun. Uh, I went because my fiance is like a massive Taylor Swift fan. And so I was like, okay, you know, um, we'll, we'll go and we'll check it out. We didn't get, we didn't go to the concert. And so uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was yeah. fun. I, I yeah. will say I thought it was too long. You know, it's too long. It's, it's and it's long. funny because it was only, it's an hour shorter than Killers of the Flower Moon. But the thing is, is that if you're not one of those little girls who's getting up and who's dancing the entire time, you're just sitting watching a concert for two hours and 45 like, minutes uh, <laughs> and you're not participating in the concert. And, uh, you know, I think if you were there, some of the parts of the show which dragged would have been fine. Right. I'm not a big uh, Evermore guy. Or f what's the other one? Folklore? Is that the album? Mm -hmm. Okay, there you go. See, I, my music listening basically stopped like 2016. So <laughs> for me, I, it was fun. You know, you get to sing You Belong With Me and all the other ones that are like key parts of your child, Feeling 22, all these other songs from your young adulthood. But after a while, when you get to the songs that you don't necessarily know as well, you're not even participating in the crowd. You're just sitting in a movie yeah. theater. Um, so for me, that that's where it really dragged. I never felt like Killers dragged at all. 
but I felt like a good portion of the Taylor show dragged and yeah. for me. What, what did you think? I'm, I'm I got, thinking like I, 30, I, 45 minutes. I, I got up and danced because otherwise I wouldn't have made it. Good. Okay. Yeah. All right. That was, yeah. that was, that's the way to get, okay. to, to get through it. And, and that made it yeah. like a deeply enjoyable experience. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, and and I, you're right. I it, kids, it's infectious to see the kids just oh, having so yeah. much fun. Even just sitting there watching these kids yeah. have fun, I had a good time. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, these kids are like running back and forth. Yeah. They're screaming. Waving around their little They're waving their thing. You know, these, it was amazing to watch. And, and, and I think, it did make me wish that I had gone to the concert because, again, you know, I'm like a casual fan when you put me up against some of these, like, Swifty <laughs> girls. But that doesn't mean, though, that just being in that environment isn't deeply infectious. So if you have yeah. kids, specifically little girls, and they like to have Swift, definitely go go do it. It's it's totally worth your time. My um, son, my son, like, 20 minutes, and he's like, yeah. get, get me out of here, man. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, well, you got to dance, and he danced, yeah. and he got into okay. it. All right, yeah. well, that's, I saw. I think I saw two boys dancing. Uh, so yeah, there, there's something for everybody there, um, if you want. All right, that was a good way to end the show. It was actually fun to talk about something lighthearted. For once, um, you guys are going to have counterpoints tomorrow. Oh, I have you can, another plug. Oh, go uh, ahead. November 27th, Crystal and I will be at uh, Politics and Prose in D.C. Oh. For my book, The Squad, which okay. is coming out around that time. So Chris, Crystal's going to like... Do the Q and A thing uh, that you do fun. at the book talk. So wow, politics and pros. Ryan's yeah. truly made it. If that, you don't that's know, right. In yeah. Washington, that is the mark of uh, a true member of the establishment. <laughs> there you go. We will do a far more official announcement and promotion, my friend. So don't worry. Uh, but people will put that on their calendars. It was always great to co-host a show with you, Ryan. And we will see you all later. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.